What's up, everybody? This is Daniel Atondo. I'm the lead pastor at Eden Church, and we're so excited that you've joined us on the Eden Podcast. The next 30 minutes, we hope, will add value to your life, deepen your connections to others, but most importantly, we want to help you grow in your faith. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. All right. Well, it's so good to have you here this morning. My name is Daniel. I'm the lead pastor here at Eden Church, and, uh, and I have a problem. And I wonder if you have the same problem, or if you've ever had the same problem, where you go to get your hair cut, and you can tell very early on that the person who's cutting your hair is not cutting your hair the way that you want them to. They're not maintaining the style of the previous haircut uh, by the person who cut it so perfectly. They follow the picture perfectly. Um, I have this problem, this dilemma that happens to me almost every single time I go and get a haircut, but it came to like its most harsh experience a few months ago. And I'll just tell you this, I, I have a problem because I will let them keep cutting my hair and I won't say anything about it. I'll just be sitting there grimacing the whole time. And this is the worst part is that after they give me the haircut, I will give them a tip as if nothing happened. But it was getting so bad. It was getting so bad a few months ago. This lady, I could tell she was new. She was sweating. Her hands were shaking. She was like giving me a fade with scissors without a comb. And I just knew that I had to stand up for myself or no one else would. And so finally, in the middle of the haircut, after sitting there for like seven minutes, just knowing that this was not going to turn out well, I finally just said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I think you need to get some help. That's what I said. That's right. A few weeks ago, we started a series of messages called Level Up, Taking Steps to Grow Your Faith. And in this series, we've been trying to answer the question, how do we grow our faith? And there are some of you that are here this morning that are thinking, well, I've never actually asked that question, and that's fine. And there are even some of us here this morning that have said, well, I, I don't really have faith to grow. And if that's you, that's perfect. You came on the perfect Sunday. But what if I told you that the more we grow our faith, the more connected we'll be to our purpose? What if I told you that the more we grow our faith, the drama that you have in your life doesn't go away, but the way that we come out on the other side is much better. What if I told you that the more we grow our faith, the more that we lean into the faith that God has created for us, the more that we become the type of person that God always dreamed we could be? I think every single one of those statements, one of those possibilities is absolutely true, which is why we're trying to answer the question, how do we grow our faith. Week one, we talked about risky faith. Week two, we talked about contagious faith. Week three, we talked about gritty faith. And I, I think that Billy, if you were here last week, I think that Billy's going to listen to the message this week. And so he's listening to this right now. Can we show Billy some love for a great, a great message last week? I had a chance to listen to it, and I thought, oh, great. They're not going to want me back. They're just going to ask for Billy to come back. But week three, we talked about gritty faith, and today we're going to talk about confrontational faith. Confrontational faith as a path to becoming all that God dreamed that we could be. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but most people do not feel comfortable with confrontation, right? Unless you're an eight on the Enneagram, then you love having what they like to call intense conversations, right? But they have no problem with converse, uh, confrontation. But the rest of us, the rest of us who have normal personality types, we do not love confrontation. And this is how you know 
You don't love confrontation if it causes you anxiety, right? If it causes you anxiety, if it drains you of energy, if you have to pray about the conflict just so you can stop thinking about it before you talk to the person, if you have to write down what you're going to say before you call the other person to make sure that you're going to say it the way that you want to say it, you may struggle with confrontation. If you avoid people you have conflict with, chances are you don't feel comfortable with confrontation. And I think that there's probably a large percentage of people in our population that would do anything they can to avoid conflict. But what I also think is true is that even if you're that type of person, even if you're the type of person that would avoid conflict at any cost, if you would just sit there and get your whole haircut destroyed and still give the person tip, even if you're that kind of person, even you know that there are some circumstances in life that require confrontation. Why? Because sometimes there's too much at risk. Sometimes there is too much that's wrong. There's too much evil. There's too much injustice. There's too much inequality. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering in our world to let the fear of confrontation keep us from doing what is right. Someone once said that evil prevails Because good people stand by and do nothing. Evil prevails because good people stand by and do nothing. And so today we're going to talk about confrontational faith. How do we have the type of confrontation that produces the right outcome? How do we have confrontation that doesn't destroy relationships? How do we have confrontation that leaves us and them better in the end? And so we're going to do that today. Confrontational faith is what we're going to be talking about And we've been learning a lot about how to grow our faith from a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived uh, in uh, right around the 400s of the B.C.s. He was this Jewish leader, and he was living in the city of Susa in the kingdom of Persia. It was the capital city of Persia. And you might be asking yourself, why is there a Jewish leader living in Persia during this time? Because Persia, Susa, was about 750 miles away from Jerusalem. What was he doing in Persia? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that 150 years before Nehemiah, before he's writing this autobiography about this season in his life, uh, the kingdom of Babylon conquered the kingdom of Judah, the southern tribe of Israel. And when they did that, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they destroyed the walls, and they took the people and enslaved them. They captured them, and they brought them back to Babylon. What about 50 years after Babylon conquered Judah, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And when they did that, they kind of had a looser hand with the way that they governed their citizens, and they allowed for about 50,000 Jews to move back into Jerusalem to reestablish the culture and the kingdom and some of their traditions and to really reestablish who they were as a people. And so Nehemiah is living in the city of Susa because he wasn't part of that group that moved back. He was living under the privilege that was provided by a really dominant kingdom in the ancient world. And so when we think about Nehemiah, we have to think like Nehemiah lived this extremely privileged life. He was living on Santana Row. He was drinking the best wines. He was drinking the best coffee. He was posting all these pictures of his food on his Instagram account so that everyone could see all the wonderful restaurants that he was going. He even started a mukbang YouTube channel. Does anyone know what mukbang is? This is, is a, it's impressive. It's really impressive. It, and, and so you may want to look this up. But if you don't have anyone to eat dinner with, 
You just go on YouTube and you just type in mukbang and you can watch someone eat dinner and it'll stimulate, it'll, it'll be sort of, uh, it'll be like you eating dinner with them, but you're just watching them eat their food. Nehemiah had his own mukbang account, okay? He was living this extremely privileged life, extremely privileged life. But in the middle of his privilege, he faces a real world problem. One of his buddies, his name was Hanani. He was living in Jerusalem. He was part of the crew that moved back to reestablish the kingdom. Well, he came back. He reconnected with Nehemiah, and he said, Nehemiah, things are not going the way that they were supposed to be going. He says, our people are in trouble. Nehemiah's family was in trouble. They were in heartache. They were in danger. The walls had been torn down. The gates had been burned with fire, and they were like living in these very challenging times. And as soon as Nehemiah heard this, everything changed for him. And have you ever had that moment where, like, something just captured your heart, it broke your heart, that you could no longer go on living the way that you did before, before you heard that information? That's what happened to Nehemiah. And so he had to respond. And the way he responded was he quit his job. He risked his future career in the government. He was working for the king as a cupbearer. And really, he was risking his life because what he was embarking on, what he was going to do, was nearly impossible. He was trying to do what some of the greatest politicians and business leaders and aristocrats from Jerusalem could not do for 100 years. He was going back to try to do. And what was crazy is as he was going back to try to rebuild the walls to provide some protection for the people who were living in Jerusalem, the Jews who were living in Jerusalem, is that God had so much favor on his life. He gave him resources. He gave him insight. People rallied around the vision. But this is the crazy thing that you know just like I know. Just because there is progress in your life doesn't mean that there are no problems. Just because you are growing and you are developing and you're making progress and good things are happening, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems all along the way that you're having to overcome just to get to that point. And that was true for Nehemiah. There were these external enemies that didn't want the wall to be rebuilt. There were internal struggles that were happening among his own people. They were getting tired. They were getting a little grouchy. They were starting to lose hope that they could actually do it. And so he had these internal struggles and external struggles that he was facing. And then today we realize that it wasn't just these people who were struggling, but there was a system of oppression that was happening in the city and among the people of the Jews. And so that's where we pick up this morning. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. It says, about this time, 1 through 5, excuse me, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. And others, says, we, others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. This is an extreme example of a horrible economic infrastructure combined with predatory lending. There were some people who didn't have money, they didn't have food, and they didn't have land to grow food on. And these people were like extremely helpless in this circumstance. But then there were people who owned land that they mortgaged their land to pay for food. 
but the cost of taxes were so high that they couldn't pay the mortgage. And some of those people got so desperate that they exchanged their children as collateral. There were literally little Jewish boys and girls that were having to choose between starvation and slavery. And this was the worst part of all of it, is that the Jews were being exploited by their own people. And so the way that Nehemiah responds when he hears these people crying out because of this injustice is really a template for how we can respond and how we have confrontation that leads both people to become better in the end. So verse 5, I'm in chapter 5, verse 6. This was Nehemiah's response. He says, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. So number one, how do we have confrontational faith? It's okay to embrace your emotions. I've realized a long time ago that if something breaks your heart or if something makes you really, really angry, that thing may be a window into what you really care about most. That thing may be a window into what you were called to do. And so we need to know that anger is not always an evil thing. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And when you see injustice happening in the world, it is good to be angry about it. It is good to not sleep on it. It is good to feel the emotion when you see people suffering or living in oppression. It is good to be angry about it. And Nehemiah was angry because he knew that what was going on wasn't part of God's plan. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19, it says, Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. And so these people were being taken advantage of because they were being charged exorbitant interest rates. And so it was really in this society a way for the rich people to get richer and for the poor people to remain in poverty. And so Nehemiah was, was really, really angry about it. It says that, that he was very angry. He was fierce with anger. But as passionate as Nehemiah was, as much as he embraced his emotion, he didn't let the emotion control him. And so I love what he does next. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, after thinking it over, after thinking it over, if we want to have helpful confrontation, sometimes it's really helpful for us to think before we speak, to think before we speak, to take a step back from the emotion and to allow for this processing to happen in our minds and in our hearts. How many of us have ever regretted something that we have said in the middle of an angry moment, right? How many of us have ever said something to our spouse that we wish we could take back in the middle of a heated battle, if you guys have that with a spouse? Or maybe you wish that you could have taken something back that you said to a friend in a moment of frustration. Or maybe you wish that you could have like not pressed send on that email when you were having a really bad day and someone was asking you a question that had nothing to do with your bad day, but, but they were in the line of fire and it's their own fault for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and you sent that email and it was mean and sharp. I'm thinking of a specific time in my mind. But I think that that if sometimes we created a little bit of margin in between our action and the anger, we would have a lot less regrets about what we've said and what we've done to people. And I love that there was so much wisdom that even though Nehemiah, it says, was very angry, it says he took some time to think about it before he acted on it. And I think there's something supernatural happens in that space. 
when we give a little bit of space between our emotion and our action, that's a little bit of space for God to enter into your situation. That's a little bit of time for you to have the wisdom to say, God, I don't think the way that I'm wanting to handle this is going to get me to where I want to go. Would you enter into the conversation and protect me from saying something that I know I'm going to regret? And this is the other key. And I love what Nehemiah did because he created some gap, but look what he does next. It creates an opportunity to invite God into the situation, but it also, what he does is he doesn't invite anyone else into the confrontation. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, I spoke out against these nobles and officials, and I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. What Nehemiah did and what he didn't do, what he didn't do was triangulate. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before, but Nehemiah did not do it. He went straight to the source of the problem. And sometimes what I see happening, and I know that there's like this subtle desire, this subtle temptation, even in my heart, to deal with conflict by talking to everyone else in the room who's not part of the problem and not part of the solution instead of talking to the person who is, right? That is what we call triangulation. It's where you have a problem with this person, and instead of you talking to this person about the problem you have with them, you talk to this person, and eventually it gets back to this person, and the problem becomes a lot bigger than it has to be. The Bible has a great word for this. It's called gossip. It's called gossip. And this is what the Bible says about gossip. Proverbs 16:28. He says, it says, a troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. The quickest way to destroy any relationship is to gossip. And the crazy thing about the church and about Christians and about spiritual people is we know how to cover the word gossip with the word prayer, right? We get, we get into our little Bible studies. We get around all our little friends, and we say, hey, let's pray for Susie. I hope there's no Susies in the room this morning. Let's pray for Susie because... So, so, and so is happening in her life. And what it does is it creates a lot more drama and it creates a conflict that doesn't need to be spread among other people when it's really just between one or two people that can be dealt with just between those two people and it gets a lot bigger. And the Bible says that this is one of the quickest ways to destroy a relationship. And this is what we've done in our church in in. in we do not have people in our leadership team who gossip. And one of the beauties of that is, is we know that if there's no one in our leadership team that is gossiping, we know that we're going to create a culture that if someone wants to come in and start gossiping and talking bad about other people, they won't last very long because we don't have people that give an ear to that. But what I love about Nehemiah is that he went right to the source of the problem. He addressed it right in front. He, he heard the cry. The people were suffering, and so he did something about it. He didn't go to other people, and, and he went straight to the people who were the source of the problem, and he talks to them. And I think that part of the reason why Nehemiah was able to be so straightforward with this group of people was because he had the character to back up his words. Look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 10. He says, I myself, as well as my brothers, and my workers have been lending the people money and grain, but now let us stop this business of charging interest. 
you must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged them when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. And so what he's saying, essentially, point number four is lead with your life first. And so what Nehemiah was saying is that we've been giving these people who are living in poverty money to pay you off, and we are in this cycle where none of us are actually getting better. Only the few of you who are extracting money from these poor people who can't pull themselves out of this system of oppression. And he's saying, you need to stop doing that, one, because it's wrong, but two, especially true, because it's opposed to the plan that God had for this community. But I don't think that he would have been able to walk up to this wealthy group of people and call them out with such conviction if he had not been living it himself. You see, he wasn't asking them to do anything that he wasn't already doing himself first. And the first thing that you need to know about any kind of leadership is that there is no substitute for character and integrity. And there are a lot of people in our world who have extremely high capacity, but they have extremely low character. And it's not that they're not leading because they're not capable of doing it. They're not leading because they haven't learned to lead themselves. And so what's powerful about Nehemiah's life is that he was able to lead so well because he lived a life of character. He lived a life of sacrifice. He was supporting these people who were living in poverty with his own resources until he found out why they were, they were in this cycle of poverty in their life. And I love it. Because the people that Nehemiah was challenging were the same people that he was also depending on to help him accomplish the vision. One thing you'll learn in leadership is like it's easy to confront people who are jerks. It's really hard to confront the people you love. And that's essentially what Nehemiah was doing. He was confronting the people that he loved, the people that were probably funding the vision, helping support the cause, but he called them out even though they were part of his posse, they were part of the crew, he called them out because they were doing the wrong thing. But I think Nehemiah knew something that was so valuable. He knew and he believed that confrontation was good. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 12. It says, They replied, We will give back everything and demand nothing from the people. I think sometimes we're so afraid to have confrontation because we're afraid of what the outcome might be. I don't know if you've ever been afraid of that, but I think about that all the time, right? We don't want to hurt someone, we don't want to offend them. We don't want to discourage them. We want to be an encouragement. We want to be liked and be loved. Some of us are people pleasers, right? We want to be in harmony in our relationships. We want to have unity. But the problem with being afraid of confrontation is that you're not giving people an opportunity to step into what God has for them. Because they, if they are living in a space that is outside of God's best for them and they can't see it themselves, They are dependent on you to help take the next right step in their life, to do the next right thing in their life. And what we're assuming is that people don't have the character. If we're not willing to confront them, we're assuming that people don't have the character to make the right choice. But I think that Nehemiah believed that if he confronted this people, 
this group of, of, of wealthy people that they had the heart and they had the character to make the right decision. And because of Nehemiah's willingness to confront, to step into conflict, this group changed their minds. They said, we're going to give everything back to these people that we've taken advantage of, and we're not going to ask anything more of them. Nehemiah's willingness to confront them unleashed a generation of oppression. A new culture emerged. He broke down a system that was holding everyone back because he was willing to believe that people could change and that there was too much at stake to stand by and do nothing. And I just wonder, what if he had never confronted this group? What would be the legacy of his leadership? That he came across a problem that he was not willing to address. And I wonder today how many of us are in circumstances, we're in relationships, we're in environments, we're in neighborhoods, we're in a city, we're in a frame of thinking that needs to be confronted. I wonder how many of us need to have a little bit of conflict so that we and the people that we are at conflict with can become all that God dreamed we could be. I wonder what our lives would look like if this week, one by one, we chose to have confrontational faith, believing that God could use our faith to help other people take their next steps. Confrontation is really, really hard. I try to avoid it whenever possible. But you know, like I know, that there are just some circumstances in our life where we cannot avoid confrontation. We can't avoid conflict. It is necessary for growth. But I think one of the most challenging things about confrontation is that moment when we realize we have to confront ourselves. Because I think that like in this entire talk, all of us were thinking about our neighbor we were thinking about our coworker. We were thinking about a family member. We were thinking about a spouse. I don't know, your kids. We were thinking about other people, but, but the greatest person that you ever have to confront is the person that you wake up every morning and you look in the mirror at. And that is the hardest person to confront. I always tell the joke that my wife and I have been happily married for one year less than we've actually been married. So I don't know if that makes sense, but like we've been married 10 years. I always tell everybody we've been happily married for nine years, right? And they kind of laugh. But the reason why we do that is because the first year of our marriage was absolutely atrocious. We struggled and we argued and we fought over the dumbest and the silliest little things. When we did our little marriage group a few months ago, we started off the group about with the five worst things that we ever said to each other. And, uh, and I remember the, one of the turning points in our marriage. It was the moment that I stopped looking at her as the problem and I started admitting to myself that I was the problem. That my arrogance was the problem. My self-righteousness, my narcissism was the problem in our marriage. It wasn't anything that had to do with her. It was all about what was happening inside of me. I had to confront myself. And that was the most painful moment of my life where I had to admit to myself that I wasn't treating the person that I said I loved the most the way that she deserved to be treated. 
And it didn't happen overnight. It happened after a series of extremely painful events in our marriage. To finally get to the point to confront the behaviors and the thinking and the attitude that was happening all right here. But as painful as it was, it was also the most liberating moment of my life because it gave me a tool to recognize that most of the issues that I'm dealing with in my life are a result of what's happening inside of me. And I don't know if anyone's ever slapped you in the face. I've been slapped in the face a lot in my life. But that's exactly what it felt like. Like this big, huge slap in the face. That everything you thought was true before wasn't true. But there's a new reality. That if you want to change something in your life, you got to start with you. you got to start with what's happening inside of you. you got to start digging deep and start exploring the weight and the burden and the pain that you're carrying and the scars and even some of the open wounds that are still happening in your life. Because sometimes what we want to address is the behavior, but it's really hard to get down to the source of where the problem is coming from. And I think that there is a point in every one of our lives that we have to confront ourselves that we have to be honest about who we are. We have to be honest about our lives and we have to ask the hard questions. Is what we're doing today really God's best for our lives? Is how I'm living today really what is right? Is there something still missing inside of me? Is there still an area of my life where I said, God, I want you, but please don't make me change this. Is there still part of our life where we have yet to trust God with more? Where we're unwilling to level up because we're afraid of what might happen to us if we gave God this little part of our life. We're afraid of who we would have to become if we trusted God with this little thing. But that is the journey of faith. The way that we grow our faith is by demonstrating faith. When I was in college, we always talked about how to get better at wrestling. And our coach said, well, you don't get better at wrestling by running or lifting weights. You get better at wrestling with wrestling. The way we grow our faith is that in every season, we choose to trust God with a little bit more. We choose to trust God with our careers. We choose to trust God with our relationships. We choose to trust God with our finances. We choose to trust God with our children and with our parents and with our life circumstances and with our career. We choose to trust God with a little bit more. We, we broaden that circle in our life where we said, God, I want you to speak into this now. Because what you realize is that at the end of the day, Whatever you're choosing not to trust God with is not living up to its potential. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. 
and a new life has begun. That is the process of trusting God with more. And the more we trust God, we put it back in the old life and we step into the new. The more we trust God, we put that in the old life and we step into the new. And I know that there are some people here today that are still living here, afraid to step into the new and staying in the old because that's where we feel safe that's where we feel comfort. That's where it feels familiar. And it's this, this one little motion that is so scary to step into the new. That's faith, to step into the new. To step into the new and to see what God has for us in this space and to give up what we thought was good in pursuit of what is great. And this morning, if that is you, if you are still wrestling, with what it means to have faith, with what it means to experience life with God, with what it means to experience the type of hope and the type of peace that we know is possible but we've never experienced, it only happens over here. When we have the courage to trust that Jesus died for the person you could become. If you would let go and receive, would let go and receive. And so if that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to embrace the gift of salvation, to receive what Jesus accomplished on the cross, to be free from habits, to be free from a life where there is no hope, where we don't know how to answer the big questions of life, like where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Those questions are fulfilled when we step into this space of knowing and loving and living with Jesus. And if you've never made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Right now I'm going to ask for everyone to close their eyes and to bow their heads. And if this morning you want to experience what it's like to have faith, if you want to take a step of faith by trusting in Jesus, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I want to encourage you to repeat this prayer after me in your heart. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to me in my darkness. Thank you for coming to me in my struggle. This morning, I know I don't know how to get where I'm trying to go. And I need your help. Today, I want to turn from my old life and I want to step into the new. I want to trust that what you have for me is better than what I've had for myself. Today I commit my life to you by believing that you died on the cross for my sins and I want to begin living for you. Will you help me to follow you? In Jesus' name, I believe. Keep your heads down and your eyes closed. And this morning, if you prayed that prayer in your heart, I want to ask you to do something bold and to simply raise your hand so that we can acknowledge what God is doing in this room. God bless you. 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 
I see you. I see you. Any others? Any others? God bless you. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this space and for the life transformation that is happening here at Ethan Church. God, I thank you that we, you have helped people to take these bold steps to trust you with their life. And God, I pray that this week, as people are taking these steps to trust you, God, that you would show yourself to them in ways that they've never experienced before. That as they step out in faith, God, you would show them that the life that they're stepping into is so much better than the life that they're leaving. That you would give them the strength, God, when they're feeling weak and overwhelmed and tired, not to go back to what, they're, what they've left, but to continue to trust, God, that you have something powerful and wonderful for them. God, we're so thankful that you are leveling up our faith, that you are giving us opportunities to trust you with more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.